Imagine standing just a stone's throw away from the world's most secretive country, North Korea. From October 8 to 17, 2023, NK News invites you on a unique journey, the second ever North Korea from a distance tour. Our experts, including NK News founder and CEO Chad O'Carroll and Cordial Tours manager Gergo Vachi, will take you on a riveting expedition along the inter-Korean border. See the stunning Kumgang mountain range from the east coast and scour the beaches of Yonpyeong Island, only seven miles away from North Korea, for items from the DPRK. In Kanghua, observe North Korean villages from close quarters. Should conditions permit, we'll even journey to the iconic joint security area and the fascinating Chorwon County. You'll also have two thrilling days in Seoul, visiting key museums, political sites, and meeting the NK News team. Throughout the week, you'll be accompanied by leading experts and staff of NK News, including Andre Lankov, Chad O'Carroll, Jacko Zwetslut, Jongmin Kim, and a multitude of others. Not only will you hear them brief on topics of their expertise, but you'll get the chance to really get to know them over dinner and drinks at multiple occasions along the way. Quote, podcast for an exclusive 10% discount when you book. Visit nknews.org tour for more information. Once again, quote, podcast when you visit nknews.org tour. Get ready for the journey of a lifetime. Listeners, welcome to the NK News Podcast. This is your host, Jacko's Wetsluit, and today it is Tuesday, the 26th of September, 2023, and I'm actually on vacation over here in sunny Europe, so I'm phoning back to the head office to talk to Alana Hildy, Deputy Managing Editor, to talk about what's been happening while I've been away. Hello, Alana. Hi, Jacko, and I'm calling from a very grey, dreary, rainy soul, so I feel like I'm back at home in Ireland. I'm jealous of your sunny European holiday. Yeah. Now, the first thing that every journalist wants to ask while they're uh, on vacation away from Korea is, has there been a major death in the North Korean leadership? No major deaths to report of Jacko. You can sit back in your chair and relax for now. Okay. All right. I'm relaxing. So I was very sad to, uh, to hear that Seoul was going to have a military parade to maybe rival the Pyongyang one that they had recently. While I was on holiday, I missed it all. Uh, Tell me what I missed. So, yeah, basically, you're not missing that much, it seems. It seems like the rain has put a bit of a dampener on things. The parade actually hasn't taken place yet through central Seoul, but we've been eagerly looking out the windows and seeing people starting to line up and they're closing off roads. This morning, there was a parade um, at Seoul Airport and President Yoon Suk-yeol was there. He gave a speech. Uh, We saw... A couple of interesting things, a a very cool Taekwondo performance. Hmm. But again, any of the uh, Air Force flybys, they were all cancelled because of the rain. So it wasn't as exciting, I think, as we'd hoped. I don't understand. Why does rain stop a flyby? Is that because the audiences won't be there to look up and and gaze admiringly on the planes? Or is it a technical issue with the planes themselves? Jacko, you're asking the wrong person because I had the exact (laughs) same question. And I'm also a bit concerned that should we need some kind of Air Force support and it's raining. Are we yeah. on our own? Or what happens? <laughs> ah, dear. Well, uh, okay. Now, looking at the NK News website, uh, as I did immediately upon waking up this morning, just like every morning, uh, <laughs> I was very, very called. curious to see this story there uh, by Collins Wirko, our, uh, our intrepid reporter, about the fact that uh, Chinese state media is reporting that foreigners can now enter North Korea after a two-day quarantine. That's- yeah, really interesting story. Yeah, so a little bit confusing. We're not super, super clear on it because basically all these reports are coming from an article from CCTV, which is Chinese state media. Um, yeah. And it's a one-sentence article. So if I may, oh. I'll read that sentence. Please. And it says that North Korea announced that from September 25th, which was yesterday... Uh, foreigners can enter the country in accordance with regulations and that they must undergo medical quarantine for a period of two days after entering. Um, So basically, all the reports that we're hearing on this are based on this one sentence. Um, It's from a journalist who typically covers DPRK state media, um, but it doesn't really cite where where, he's got that information. But an expert that Colin did speak to said, 
because it's become because it's coming from the state broadcaster, it appears to be authoritative. But yeah, it's an interesting one. I think, you know, you can look at it a few ways. Is the news here the fact that the quarantine has now changed from seven days, which it previously was, down to two days? You know, are tourists going to be allowed back in? Is that what it means? Does it just mean... Wow, but which you know, tourists would sign up for a two-day quarantine? Yeah, exactly. Or is it just, you know, for people, North Koreans who've been stuck overseas, or sorry, not North Koreans, obviously, for uh, foreign diplomats maybe who are yeah. wanting to come back? So, yeah, it's not super clear yet, but it'll be interesting to see coming days and weeks what really happens. Exactly. I predict that uh, yeah, if this Chinese state media story is accurate, that we can expect within, oh, let's be generous, within 72 hours, there should be something out of North Korean media that confirms it. Mm -hmm. We'll have to keep an eye out for that for sure. That's what I would expect. Yeah. Now, of course, I've been wondering, as, as I'm sure many of our readers and listeners have, what have been the developments on the North Korea-Russia front since the the big podcast that we did last week with Andre and Anton talking about uh, Kim Jong-un's visit to uh, the Far East to, visit, uh, to meet with uh, Vladimir Putin. So what's been happening on the Russia front? Well, Kim arrived home safely and, uh, you know, on his train again. Anton Sokolin, who I know was on the podcast with you recently, yes. has written a fantastic wrap-up, basically of some of the things that we might have missed. So I really encourage listeners to have a look at that. It's titled Fur Hats and Limo Talks. And kind of gives us a look behind the scenes of some of the things that maybe we not so much missed, but maybe weren't as focused on, um, including some of the fantastic gifts that Kim ah. Jong-un received during this trip, ranging from things, as I said, like a fur hat, yep. which very interestingly, they had to do some serious research about how to make sure this hat would fit Kim's head. Oh. Um, and of course, you know, they can't simply ask the leader of North Korea, how big is your head? So apparently um, they had to use photos of him and uh, the, the Russian ambassador to the DPRK and kind of compare their head sizes and wow. make a hat based on that. But if, if listeners have a look at that article, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. There's yeah. some great pictures of Kim in the in his hat. It is a good long article. It looks like it'll be ideal uh, breakfast reading for me this morning. Exactly. Yeah. Or Jacko, you can just skip through and look at the pictures, you know. <laughs> well, and there are some good pictures. I'm very impressed with the upon arrival. Uh, Kim Jong-un welcomed in Komsomolsk on Amur with bread and salt. Is that something traditional they do there, bread and salt? Apparently it is. Yes, that's what Antonin said. That's a traditional greeting. And also, interestingly enough, was he quite happily ate the bread ah. um, with no concerns of you know, right. where it came from or who baked it. Or clearly he's not gluten intolerant. Right. <laughs> now, I wonder which of these gifts will end up in the House of International, sorry, the International Friendship Exhibition up there in the Myohyang Mountains. The two giant above-ground and below-ground buildings that hide uh, that hold all the presents that Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il ever received, have they already started a separate exhibition for things that Kim Jong-un got? I think so. From, I recall in 2019 seeing some items, including the uh, the basketball that Dennis Rodman brought. And so perhaps they'll have that the hat with ear flaps. I've forgotten what it's called. Maybe a matrushka and the bread and the salt may soon appear in, in that museum. Well, there's those. There's also, um, he was gifted a glove from a spacesuit that Russian oh, cosmonauts yeah. wore to space. That was one of the coolest ones, I think. And then there's also a picture of him receiving this, I suppose you'd call it a statuette, maybe a, yeah. a desk decoration from a Russian official of a fish head with another fish statue coming out of it. Oh, <laughs> it's my. a really fantastic picture. Very interesting president. And it's a very interesting present, present excuse me. There's also uh, an interpreter. There's no president for a president like that. Yeah, <laughs> looking on kind of in disbelief. So. <laughs> wow, the, yeah, I've got to find that fish photo. There are, I should explain to our listeners, there are actually multiple pictures available at ePlace in the article. So you've got to click through sometimes to get to the right yes, one. Yes, we made galleries. There was too much to choose from. We couldn't narrow it down. Right. Now, is, is this still you know, a major topic of analysis and conversation in the soul-based media? Uh, yeah, I think that people are still talking about it. But I think, of course, you know, it'll be interesting to see what comes in the next few weeks. Colin also recently wrote about some activity happening at Sohei Spaceport in North Korea. And um, ah. so you know, one of the things that was discussed with between Kim and Putin during that trip to Russia was potentially, you know, Russia helping North Korea launch a space satellite, launch a satellite into space, spy satellite. Right. 
After um, two failures earlier this year. Yes, and after that second failure, uh, you know, state media reported that there'll be a third launch in October. So ah. based on Colin's research, he's seeing that there is still activity happening at that spaceport. So it'll be interesting to see, does North Korea go ahead and attempt a third launch without the help of Russia or yes. when that help will come, if it will come. So definitely we're we're keeping an eye out for those kind of things too. Yes, I mean, if you're offered a free ride and space rides do get to be quite expensive, then uh, you wouldn't <laughs> refuse it. I, I certainly wouldn't. Of course not. No, that's, that's a good deal. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And what else has been on your radar the last couple of days? Uh, so yesterday we had a very interesting story um, about this famous uh, North Korean ferry. It's called the Mangyongbong 92. Ah. And uh, so one of our reporters actually found from some satellite imagery, no, excuse me, from some ship tracking data, uh, yeah. that this ferry is on the move again and it's up near Russia. It's in uh, North Korea's closest port to Russia, which is Ranjin. Yeah, so basically this uh, famous ferry, it, it hasn't moved much since 2018 um, and is now kind of on the go again. So it kind of raises questions about maybe uh, cargo transfer, maybe people transfer. Right. Um, so another thing that we're keeping our eye out on. This is the ferry, that the Mangyongbong ferry that used to go between North Korea and Japan all the time to uh, take ethnic Koreans on trips to North Korea and also take goods back from Japanese Koreans, the Zainichi. That's correct, yeah. And then it also it was quite famous for transporting um, a really large delegation uh, of North Koreans to the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics back in ah, 2018. Yes. So it did, right. Okay, so that's a, it's a very, yeah, as you say, it's a famous and important ship. And now it's made yes. a trip to the Far East. So yes, uh, we will soon hopefully learn more about that and see if it becomes perhaps a, a regular ferry trip since it's been banned from going to Japan since 2006 and certainly no sign right. that it'll be coming to South Korea anytime soon. Right, yeah, that's, I think that's safe to say. Wow, it's been around, I, I forgot the age of the thing, but it's been around for decades. It is a long ship, it's 126 metres long. Yes, it There's is a, a large ship. Carry, yeah, and a lot so of people. Exactly, maybe both. Yeah, wow, okay, great. And uh, one last story to leave us with today. Well, I'd like to finish on another fun one, if if I may, Jacko. Um, oh, yes. We had a really great piece from our intern, Joe, at the, at the beginning of last week about some of the fashion items that in this delegation to North Korea, sorry, this North Korean delegation to Russia were sporting, in particular, some very, very, very expensive handbags as seen by, you know, the North Korean leader's sister, Kim Yo-jong. She had a Dior handbag that was... Oh. Estimated to be around seven thousand dollars, while uh, Foreign Minister Cho Sung Hee had a a Gucci handbag, apparently made from ostrich leather, wow. um, that we found for sale on a second-hand website for ten thousand dollars. Second-hand, so imagine what it could be if it was new. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so she's stuck. Maybe she'll throw it up on a second-hand website herself. <laughs> ostrich leather, golly. Yeah. Yes, I've just dug up that article now. Our listeners can find it. It's called The North Korea's Foreign Minister Totes 10,000K Ostrich Leather Gucci Bag in Russia. And I also see um, Hyun Song Wol, a very prominent North Korean woman in a leadership class uh, up there, also with uh, with a handbag. Do we know any, anything about that one? So poor Hyun Song Wol apparently didn't get the same clothing and accessories budget. Oh. Our research trying to find that bag, it showed up on a Chinese made or Chinese website basically, and it can be purchased for about eight dollars. So oh, much different price point there. Gee. And and she's you know, I mean, arguably much more uh front and center than Kim Yo Jong is quite off these international meetings. Yeah, it looks like all the budget went on the ostrich leather and then she just got whatever was left, maybe. Oh, dear. I do recall that when she came down for the, was it the sort of preliminary group to prepare for the Pyeongchang Olympics in 2018, she had uh, an expensive handbag back then. So it's not all bad. It swings in roundabouts, I suppose. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, well, I thank you for bringing me up to speed, Alana, on all the latest news around North Korea. I hope that the uh, the weather stays lovely and Irish for you there so you can feel at home. <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen, Jacko. <laughs> uh, and I will be uh, calling in with uh, with Brian Betts next week to find out what's happening while I'm away, because uh, I've still got one more week of vacation to go. So thanks for coming on the show and helping me to record this in my morning. I'm going to go out and have a lovely Dutch day. Enjoy, Jacko. Thank you. Thank you, Lana. 
Attention North Korea portfolio professionals. Are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top-notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org professionals. Joining me via Zoom today for NK News Podcast's long interview is Sokil Park, South Korea Country Director for International Nonprofit Organization, LINK, for which he was made a member of the most excellent order of the British Empire, MBE, in 2019. You can find LINK online at libertyinnorthkorea, all one word, .org, and Sokil Park on Twitter at S-O-K-E-E-L, Sokil. Sokil, welcome back on the show. Sokil Park MBE, do I address you as member Sokil or is just Sokil MBE enough? Just sir, it's fine. Sir, all right. <laughs> no, sir. Sokil, <laughs> just Sokil, obviously. Uh, you were last on the podcast in August 2018 on episode 32, quite a while ago. And on that episode, you and I talked about change within North Korea being driven by the 25 million North Koreans who are not named Kim Jong-un, with the people taking it upon themselves to improve their lives and their country. And we're going to talk a bit more about that today, but also all the wonderful work that uh, that Link does. So for new listeners who maybe weren't already fans of the NK News podcast five years ago, can you tell us what Link is? What does the name mean? What does the group do? And, and how long have you been there? can't believe that's been five years already, Jaco. Yeah. <laughs> that has flown by. But so I've been working for Link for bit more than 10 years, but I feel like I've been saying that for a couple of years, so it's probably 12 years by now. <laughs> and uh, Liberty in North Korea is an international NGO with offices in the United States and here in South Korea, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are comprised of staff from North Korea, from South Korea, Korean diaspora, if you like, like me, and also, you know, non-Korean foreigners, of course, especially in the States. And uh, we work on North Korea in four main areas, and I guess that you might have questions on these, so I won't go into details, but we help North Korean refugees to reach freedom and safety in the first place. Yeah. And then we work with North Korean refugees who have resettled in South Korea or the United States to provide resettlement assistance and longer-term capacity building. Thirdly, we work to develop content and technologies to provide North Korean people with more access to information something that you know a lot of north korean refugees or defectors themselves advocate for you mean uh, trying to give more information to people while they're still in north korea yeah okay. while they're still in north korea you know it could be north koreans who are outside of north korea but still within the north korean system yeah as well you know we're still working for the north korean government right and then lastly we work to try and change perceptions on north korea by you know, working with North Korean refugees again to amplify their voices, stories and perspectives to bring more focus to the North Korean people and to, to balance, you know, this what I see as a massive overfocus on the politics and security, Kim Jong-un and, and nuclear weapons and so on. So that's the main areas that we work in. OK, so liberty in North Korea. Some people might think from the name that you're after regime change in North Korea. Is that part of the vision of Link? Not necessarily. You know, the, the vision of our organization is literally our name. It's Liberty in North Korea. It's North Korean people achieving the, their freedoms and rights that, you know, a lot of people around the world and probably a lot of people listening to this podcast might sometimes take for granted. Mm -hmm. I think that there's different possible pathways to that. Regime change is obviously a kind of hot button word. So yeah. we don't necessarily talk about or focus on that. 
<laughs> but the important thing is the conditions that North Korean people live in. Broadly speaking, what has changed about Link's work in the last five years since you were last on the show? I think that there have been significant changes and also, you know, things that have remained consistent. Of course, the the COVID pandemic was a massive yeah. disruption to a lot of our operations. And uh, we're still kind of recovering from that, you know, especially that was a huge disruption to our refugee work. Mm. People familiar with the numbers will know that the numbers were actually were already decreasing. Yeah, It was already becoming more difficult to, you know, escape from North Korea. And most of the people are coming all the way through China into Southeast Asia and then uh, coming into South Korea. And uh, that's a very long journey that goes through multiple borders. And it was already becoming more difficult because of increased security, especially on the North Korea-China border and in China itself. Mm -hmm. But in the last year before the pandemic, 2019, just over a thousand North Korean refugees made it to South Korea. But in the last two years, so 2021 and 2022, yes. that was only around 63, you know, 67 people wow. making it here. So the numbers have just fallen off a cliff. And yeah. that, of course, affected our workers a lot because we're working, you know, in that field to bring mm -hmm. people through. But then yeah. it affects kind of the whole pipeline as well, right? Because there aren't North Korean refugees then who are resettling in South Korea coming out of you know, the, the South Korean government processing through the National Intelligence Service and then uh, Anna One, yep. the South Korean government's resettlement education facility. And so, you know, the supply, if you like, of North Korean refugees in their early resettlement has really dried up. And so we've had to pivot from that in-person events in South Korea or the United States, especially yeah. maybe in South Korea for a longer time, were affected as well. And so our kind of outreach and engagement work had to pivot to online like like the same as nk news and nk pro yeah. and pretty much everybody um but we're we're kind of getting back into it i don't think that there's going to be a getting back to the 2019 normal yeah especially in terms of the refugee work is that because it's uh, it's much harder to cross the border from north korea it's yes it's much much harder to escape from inside north korea but even you know chinese surveillance and control over movement and these kind of things have increased and not recovered. Of course, since the end of last year, China stopped its so-called kind of zero COVID policy that made yeah. it almost impossible for North Korean refugees. It made it impossible. It made it difficult enough for ordinary Chinese people to move across the country. Right. And for North Korean refugees who can't show real ID and get the tests and the vaccine in order to be able to show the you know health QR codes and so on, it became basically impossible. But there's a legacy of how much that was disrupted, and the the increase in you know kind of surveillance capacity that the Chinese yeah. government has, and that again you know predates the pandemic. Even this was a yeah. trend that had an inflection point and acceleration, if you like, with the pandemic. I wonder, Sukhili. If the pandemic also affected the funding from donors as well? Thankfully, we were not affected massively by mm -hmm. that overall. In fact, we were very thankful that it seemed that even when a lot of people around the world were hurting financially during the pandemic, people still prioritized funding us. Yeah. And like for instance, you know, in the United States, there was a time when people were getting I don't know exactly what they were called, but kind of, you know, government pandemic bailout checks. Right. And it was like a specific number of dollars, right? Like, for instance, if it was $480, we all of a sudden saw this spike of donations of exactly $480. Wow. And so people who were receiving that who maybe felt like they could survive without this, but they wanted to help people that maybe couldn't. We That's saw that kind of pass through. So, yeah, very, very thankful, of course, for that. Yeah. Uh, you kindly sent me a link to your 2022 annual report, which uh, listeners can download from libertyinnorthkorea.org if they want to. It's compared to many annual reports that I've seen, it's a much more attractive one, lots of short, snappy uh, figures and quotes and attractive visuals. So uh, it was an easy read. Uh, I've got some stats from your report that I, I'm going to read at you. And then I'm going to try something different. Just say a few words about each of them, like super brief, because I'm going to ask some more things in detail afterwards. Okay, so some stats from last year. 
five rescued. Yeah, so uh, this was more at the end of last year. A couple of people went to the United States and mm -hmm. three people managed to come through China with the easing of restrictions there. So we were very thankful for that resumption. Okay, far too long. All right. 230 plus refugees Sorry. supported in resettlement. That includes in the United States and in South Korea through our various programs. $4,145,144 raised. Again, you know, even with the pandemic and with a lot of disruption in both our programs and our fundraising work, very thankful to mm. still be able to maintain the organization and keep things ticking. That's great. 194 people empowered through links programs. So we might get into this a little bit more, but this we is will, including yeah. our English language education programs, mm -hmm. scholarship programs, mentorship, and so on. Again, across South Korea and the United States. Great. Five Link Labs projects. I can't talk that much about specifics there, but again, that is the work to try and increase North Korean people's access to information. That's an area of our work that we call labs. Uh -huh. And lastly, 13,172,952 people reached with the stories of the North Korean people. Yeah, this is a really important part of our work, I think, you know, again, trying to amplify North Korean people's voices so that the world doesn't just mostly hear about Kim Jong-un and mm. nuclear weapons and build more support for North Korean people. Right. And that's certainly uh, very timely uh, right now. I mean, this week, uh, all that the news is talking about is a possible meeting that may take place in the coming weeks between Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. So yeah, it is important, of course, to remember uh, that there are lives of 25 million other people in North Korea who are not named Kim Jong-un. All right, so let's talk about uh, some of your programs in a bit more detail. Let's start with the refugee rescue and resettlement support. First of all, just about the, the latter part, resettlement support. Don't refugees from North Korea get help with housing and resettlement from the South Korean government? Yes, they do. And in fact, you know, especially here in South Korea, um, there's a significant amount of assistance, especially if you compare it to other refugee assistance programs around the world by governments. And this mm. is because the South Korean government has a very different approach to North Korean refugees than, uh, yeah. than other refugee populations. Yeah. In a uh, CNN report earlier this year, you commented about the three months of mandatory resettlement training that refugees receive at the Hanawon facility that you mentioned earlier. You said, uh, quote, this approach is outdated, ineffective and overly restrictive. Could you say more about that? Yeah, you know, this comes from partly conversations with North Koreans who have gone through that process. And also just my own assessment, you know, Jacko, me and you both yeah. also moved to this country yeah. and we had to learn how to operate in the society. And we did that by just living here and mm. by getting the bus in the wrong direction and making mistakes and probably offending people and so on. I don't think that a government program of three months in a facility, you know, kind of locked away out in the countryside would have been the best way for us to learn those lessons. And so that's the, you know, that's the overall logic. And it's also in the case of North Korean refugees in particular, it's people a lot of the time, you know, people in their 20s who have risked their lives for mm. freedom. And so there's an uneasy irony that when people arrive here, actually yeah. the first six months of their life in the society have little access to those freedoms that they risk their lives for. A lot of people accept it. Some people don't. And I think that the that sentiment that maybe it's not the right thing should be amplified and, and, and should be empowered because overall, I don't think it's efficient. I'm curious what you said just makes me wonder whether the National Human Rights Commission has ever said anything about this or whether if anyone's ever, you know, or if Link perhaps on behalf of refugees has, has ever le leveled a, uh, a petition or a complaint at the uh, Human Rights Commission about the uh, restriction of freedoms. I'm not aware of that. I am aware of, you know, different efforts, you know, including for myself, if I have the opportunity to talk with relevant people, then I will raise this and think it's a, a complaint which is known to relevant institutions, but yeah. there's not been enough enough of that going in for to actually make a change. Right. Now, two of the refugees that Link helped to uh, resettle last year ended up, as you said, in the United States. What are some reasons why a North Korean might choose to go to the United States, which after all is the country they've been taught all their lives as the enemy, rather than uh, South Korea, where they look the same and speak the same language. Yeah, it's interesting, right? And mm. I think it's very individual as well. A lot of people have different reasons for that. But 
you know, some some of the people, maybe some of the commonality is an uneasiness with resettling in South Korea, not, you know, having a complete trust maybe of their security in South Korea yeah. in the sense that either the South Korean government or pro-North Korea elements, you know, even spies, agents and so on in South Korea might be a risk. And some of that, I think, might be justified sometimes. And, and sometimes, you know, people who are coming from a very different information and cultural background but like you said, it, it is kind of interesting that some people would then choose to go to the United States, which has yeah. been framed so strongly as the enemy. Right. But I think that you know, in some conversations that that actually can backfire with some North Koreans who, again, these are the people who are willing to risk their lives to defect to the other side to mm. escape to reach freedom. And uh, some sometimes the fact that America has loomed so large in their lives mm -hmm. as this kind of cultural idea I think actually makes people interested and mm. people, you know, if they get over the idea that it's an enemy or maybe it's not an enemy, then they might see it as a big, powerful country yeah. that it might be a good, good idea to kind of restart your life in such a country as opposed to South Korea, which is so close to North Korea and maybe more risky in some ways. Are you able to say any general things about the difficulties or challenges of resettlement in South Korea versus in the US? Is one harder or easier than the other? I guess it's apples and oranges. It's the, the challenges are, are very different. In the United States, what you could say for it, positive side, is that there's not so much baggage of being a North Korean refugee in the United States. You know, if, if you're in the United States, then people aren't picking up on a different accent. Basically, you know, people are seeing an East Asian immigrant who maybe doesn't speak English that well, but yeah. Americans are very used to that. And so there's not so much a kind of, you know, strong label or, you know, questions about somebody's background or identity and so on. So it's a little bit more kind of clean slate. Yeah. But there's less support from the government. There's less support generally, you know, from civil society. There is the language and more cultural barriers to overcome and so on. So there's pros and cons. And, and South Korea is kind of the reverse of that, right? I think that... Mm -hmm. A lot of the challenges that people face are because of the way that South, some South Koreans might react to their identity and prejudice and discrimination that people might face. But then, you know, again, if people are able to get through that, then maybe they have a better chance of going to university with more support. And maybe they have a broader array of kind of professional options mm. that they can pursue. And there's also, you know, more of a, a community here which again can be a plus and a minus. But I think that for a lot of people, if they're positive about that, then there's more of community, there's more North Koreans that they can build relationships with, and there's more support in general, specifically for North Korean refugees. Well, let me pick up on that community aspect there. There have been some tragic cases in the last couple of years of North Korean women refugees who were found dead in their apartments after dying there alone sometime before they were found. What can you say about community or support networks for North Korean refugees? Are they insufficient? Are there people falling through the, the cracks? Unfortunately, I think that those cases show that there are. And there's also cases where sometimes some of these people may have been doing much better previously. But a lot of the mm. time, you know, people will come to a period of their lives where they face more challenges. Various things might have triggered that, including maybe even things that have happened back home to their families mm. in North Korea. And if somebody is a newcomer to this society without immediate family here, they may have been able to build friendships, but they may not have the kind of the density of relationships and support that they can really turn to uh, when they face difficulties. And that's that can be difficult enough for South Koreans and just anybody around the world. You know, a lot of people struggle with mental health issues. North Korean refugees are maybe particularly vulnerable to some of those issues. And maybe there's, there can be cases where it can be more difficult to get support. Mm. And that's definitely something that we think about, you know, you, your question before about the support that already exists from the government. They tend to be good at providing the kind of hard, tangible support in terms of housing and maybe assistance for, for health, you know, some healthcare and education. But they can't really provide community or the mm -hmm. more kind of psychosocial support. And is, is that what Link tries to do? That is one of the areas that we focus more on as well. 
I think it's difficult for anybody to build community for somebody. Mm. It's often a byproduct of other activities. You know, if you think about the communities that most people may be a part of through school or through work or through, you know, a religious institution. And so it's difficult to just build community as a product in itself. But through regular meetings, through activities and so on, you know, by providing people with opportunities to meet other North Koreans, meet South Koreans, you know, meet like-minded people. Yeah, we'll we'll do what we can. But mm. it's also, you know, just something which is very individual. And and sadly, there are these cases and there probably will continue to to be some of those cases because there is a significant population at this point. Just briefly, I, I know it's not our main topic, but since you, you mentioned it in passing, what are some of the, the ways that North Korean refugees can still remain in contact with and receive news from relatives back in North Korea? Yeah, that's, I think, a really important issue that a lot of people may be less familiar with. And unfortunately, that's also become more difficult with the pandemic. But mm. a lot of North Korean refugees have immediate family or relatives and even friends that they might be able to be in contact with in North Korea. And the basic system is that there are Chinese mobile phones. These days, there'll be smartphones loaded with various communication apps, of course, WeChat in particular, the Chinese all-purpose Kakao Talk or WhatsApp equivalent. And if they're in North Korea, but within range of the Chinese network, Mm -hmm. and, you know, people will hide these phones in mountains, go up, you know, go up mountains to be safer and also try and get signal that's coming across the river, then they can use that just like they're in China Mm. with added risk of potentially being caught in North Korea, which would be very dangerous. And so people can send messages, they can send photographs of handwritten letters or voice messages they can send photos of people, you know, family even. Yeah. This enables verification because that's an issue. You know, there's all the time this is about sending money into the family in North Korea and brokers may try and scam people mm. uh, if, for, you know, for a quick buck. And so, but if you can have a voice message of your mother, for instance, who may yeah. even not live near the border, they may live in the interior, Ah. But you may be able to use different devices to get a voice message out and then confirm just by knowing what your mom sounds like. Right. And then be able to send send money back in through those same networks. And there's actually a somewhat complicated mm. kind of money transfer system that happens across the China, North Korea border. And of course, money from South Korea, from you know, the North Korean refugees are saving up is going into China first. Yeah. And then it's being exchanged between brokers on the, the China and North Korea sides. And then that can be transferred within North Korea again, not just in the border region, but even in, in the interior. But with the border lockdowns and mm. with the way that's affected smuggling and also other forms of trade and, and also crackdowns on such brokers operating on the North Korean side, a lot of people sadly have lost touch with their family yeah. members in North Korea during the pandemic. And then other people may have may have only had limited contact and also the money that they're sending back. The commission rates may be as much as, you know, half of the money oh. is lost to the brokers uh-huh. because, yeah, because there's, there's so few options to do that and because yeah. the brokers themselves are taking on increasing risk. And risk, so they yeah. need more of a cut to make yeah. it worth it for themselves. But just one more point on that. Mm. I think that even though it's become more difficult, it's still really important. We hope that, of course, it becomes a little bit less difficult because this money, the equivalent of $1,000, $2,000 going into a North Korean family inside yeah. North Korea is huge in terms of being able to provide for the family. But it goes beyond that as well, because sometimes we find that the people that are receiving this money will become micro lenders in their own area. Uh, and loan money out to other families who may be trying to, you know, start a business or increase the size of their business. So it essentially becomes kind of micro lending and startup capital mm. or various entrepreneurial, you know, market activities that's empowering economic change inside the country, 
And with that, there's also the information change of North Koreans inside the country, starting from the families, but also spreading into the communities, mm -hmm. understanding that there are these North Korean defectors in South Korea who are doing so well there that they're able to send back what seems like you know huge amounts of money yeah. to these North Korean families. So that's a really important link, especially as so mother so many other links have you know kind of dried up. Um, and that's one of the things that makes it important to work with North Korean refugees to be mm. more successful in arriving here and then be more successful in their new lives here as well, because it affects not just them as individuals, but the bigger picture of even the economic and information environment inside North Korea. Okay, well, let's talk about another area then, moving on to empowering agents of change. How does Link actually work with resettled North Korean refugees to support their success and to build their capacity as agents of change so that they can do exactly as you say to you know send money and information back to their families yeah so we have a few programs like i mentioned in south korea in the u.s our mm. two main programs currently in south korea are our english language program and mm -hmm. our change maker scholarship program and so for english language maybe it's obvious to a lot of listeners but english language is so important as a determinant of success in different ways in South Korea. It's probably the subject that South Korean students invest the most time and money into studying. And why is that? Why is it important in South Korea? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a good question. It's maybe more important than it should be, but it's important even in university in the course of studying non-directly English language related subjects like engineering or science students find that they need a level of English to understand a lot of their study materials, uh -huh. the lectures, these kind of things. So it, it factors into educational success. Mm -hmm. It can be a reason why some North Korean refugees drop out of university, for instance. Mm -hmm. And there is, there is a higher dropout rate uh, still for North Korean refugees than their South Korean peers. And then for getting jobs as well, again, the question is probably more important than it should be but a lot of companies will make a requirement on the you know TOEIC, TOEFL, you know these standardized tests of English ability. Yeah. And beyond that as well, it is the, the lingua franca. It is you know a language that opens up a lot of opportunities to communicating with not just Koreans, being able to travel abroad, and going beyond the individual to the bigger picture. We still need more English-speaking yeah. people from North Korea who can share their stories and perspectives to global audiences. You know, there's still a lack of that. And so it's it's one of the most consistent challenges that North Korean refugees tell us about, that, mm -hmm. they, that they need support with, especially conversational English. Yeah. And thankfully, we have a network and relationships with a lot of people who can volunteer to teach English to North Korean refugees. Mm. And so we have a program where we'll match that up and we provide a curriculum. And there's been hundreds of North Korean refugees that have gone through that program already, actually, and thousands of hours of English language study yeah. um, since that program started in, I think, late 2021. Now, what about your uh, Changemaker Scholarship Program? Tell us about that. Yeah, this program was started because we saw a, a kind of gap in the scholarships provided to North Korean refugees. Mm. There are different scholarships provided by different foundations and so on, but they, as scholarships tend to be, they're focused on academic success. But with the work that we've done with a lot of young North Korean refugees here and university students, we find that a lot of the time there are young North Koreans living in South Korea who are attending university so they have to study and uh, they're also you know maybe here by themselves or they're having to support their family mm -hmm. so they're working part-time jobs in convenience stores restaurants you know factories and so on and then they also want to contribute to this issue whether it be by you know sharing their stories you know doing campus activism working with ngos like ourselves or the other great ngos that are here in south korea but the financial constraint means that often that third thing has to be deprioritized because yeah. they they, ha they have to spend time working and their remaining time goes on study. And so with this program, we're trying to identify people who have some kind of track record of activism 
they've they've proven that they want to participate they want to whether it be working on information projects or technology projects that can help people inside north korea mm. or working to change the narrative on north korea or supporting other north koreans in the community there's various ways that north koreans can play a really important role on this issue and so if they have a heart to do that then we want to support people who might otherwise have to spend 10 hours a week even 20 hours a week in a convenience store mm. and and not starting on that kind of activism right so we've seen quite a lot of success with the first iteration of that program last year and so we we've just started again with the new class and so we have 17 really interesting you know mostly young but there there is diversity in the ages there people mm-hmm. doing all sorts of really interesting projects and if we can fund them with it's 500,000 won a month so it's about $400 mm-hmm. it's maybe not a ton of money but that mm-hmm. can make the difference for a lot of people in terms yeah. of just reducing the, their financial burden and freeing them up to be able to focus on this kind of great activism that they're doing right in terms of North Korean refugees uh, starting businesses or or uh, getting jobs here in South Korea can you say a couple of words about what kinds of businesses North Koreans who who do start businesses what kinds of businesses they begin and and also what kind of jobs they do well at after going through um, education and resettlement that's a good question i think that's a little bit difficult because again there's there's so much individual differences there yeah but i know people that have started food businesses sometimes those are obviously lower startup costs Mm. there's a guy that I know quite well who uh, has a kind of web development business mm. there's a guy Kim Hangmin who is somewhat known in the community for you know his his role model is Steve Jobs ah. and he's you know opened businesses repairing apple products and mm. you know selling phones and that kind of stuff there's people that run cleaning businesses there's, there's all sorts yeah yeah i guess you know it's a little bit like the question of well what what businesses the immigrants start um, yeah. there's probably some companies but it's pretty diverse and then in terms of jobs i guess there's age differences there but maybe some of the older people eventually go for the, I, i think there's a trend of people going for jobs that are a little bit more individual require less working in in teams mm. and so for instance being a truck driver for instance right or maybe being a a technician for instance the kind of people that might come and fix your air conditioning or yeah. these kind of things you know of course you know there, there are people that are working all the way from you know kind of construction type work mm. to people that are working in well paid IT jobs in South Korea you know depending on the background that they have the skills they are bringing with them or that they're able to develop here and then for the younger people it's it's so much more diverse because you know some people are you know may have come to South Korea when they were in their teens or in their 20s yeah. and so there's they can go through the South Korean education system and then pretty much have the same kind of array of opportunities that South Koreans might have And uh, now what is that Links Advocacy Fellows program? How does that work? So uh, this is we select around four mostly, you know, young North Korean refugees and they might be at university and uh, they may be able to take some time out to uh, they may be based in South Korea or the or the United States, but mm. the program mostly happens in the states and we cultivate them as advocates as the name suggests, work on public speaking, you know, doing effective Q&A and you know trying to drive home key messages and the mm. uh, the calls to action and then they practice real advocacy across the United States you know visiting places like Google and you know major companies and universities on the west coast you know going going through the middle going to New York going through DC you know engaging with the the stakeholders on the, on the government and political side and this is again to try and balance the narrative and the the viewpoints that people hear on yeah. North Korea it's still the case that especially in the United States even more so and and around the world in English people hear a lot about North Korea and my missile expert friends I know won't hold it against me 
mm. for saying this, but people hear too much about North Korea from missile experts. Yeah. And not enough from North Korean people. And so mm. that program is trying to trying to address that. And we find that even in DC as well. There's so much interest, so much demand for being able to learn directly from North Korean people with mm. lived experiences inside North Korea, trying to understand more about North Korea as a three-dimensional country, mm -hmm. trying to understand North Korean refugee experiences and so on. So the demand is clearly there and it's still not being met. Mm. And so this is our attempt to, to try and meet that and trying to, trying to change people's perspectives so mm. that ultimately we can bring more support. So we think that the US government should have a better policy on North Korea that can be more, you know, uh, kind of positive towards North Korean people and the changes that they're able to drive. So including, for instance, increasing the support for information access initiatives. So some people listening today might be interested in um, in seeing a, 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 an advocacy fellows event, North Korean speakers. Can they find that out through uh, through the website if there's an event coming up near them? Yeah, the the easiest things is probably to follow our social media mm. because we will, you know, we'll publicize those kind of events in advance. So all the main channels, um, Facebook, Instagram. I don't think we're on MySpace anymore. But uh, are you still on Twitter or X? We're on Twitter and or X. Yeah. And I, I'd encourage people to sign up for our email newsletters as well. Ah, we'll yeah, put that's information. Cool out on that and yeah i think the next iteration of that program will be starting kind of early next year now i want to also talk a little bit about uh, accelerating change inside north korea how is link innovating new ideas to empower north korean people with access to uh, outside information and technology that seems quite difficult it is difficult and it's especially in the deployment of that it's become much more difficult with the border closures uh, with pandemic, of course, you know, we hope that there's some opening that's happening this year and some options might come back online. It's difficult, but I think it's it's really important. You know, I can't stress enough how much North Koreans themselves emphasize this. North mm. Koreans who have again, escaped and then were able to share their perspectives on these things with us. It's by far the the main, you know, consistent thing that North Korean refugees ask for. That this is the way that we need to support North Koreans inside the country, you know, help mm -hmm. overcome the ideological dominance and information dominance that the North Korean government has. And a lot of the time, that's, of course, coming from North Korean defectors having been impacted themse by themselves so much by getting some access to foreign information. Mm -hmm. And then that, most of the time these days, being the main driver for them then risking their lives and escaping to the other side. And so then them seeing that, you know, this has such a big impact on such a big impact on me. If we can get so much more information and media into North Korea, then it will really change things inside the country. And and that North Korean people deserve access to different information so they can learn about the, you know, learn and feel and and hear about the bigger outside world. And even their own country, you know, truths about their own country mm. that the North Korean government denies them. And so, unfortunately, you know, this is a, a very risky area of our work as well, where, mm -hmm. of course, you know, there's, there are types of information that if they got into the wrong hands, it could really undermine this work and even, you know, put people's lives in danger. And so a lot of it has to be held quite close to the chest. Yeah. But we do work with different North Korean defectors especially people who have left quite recently mm -hmm. or people who may have had, you know, interesting experiences when they were still in North Korea or in the North Korean system, including the you know, people that were working in the IT sector, for instance, working with different people to create tailored content. And we can talk more about that if you want. And also technologies as well, technologies mm. and tools, programs to try and help North Korean people to access more information, to stay safer while they're doing that. And so there's quite a lot of development going into those kinds of tools and products. Now, some might say that the almost complete lack of visible change inside North Korea, in fact, almost going into reverse, into complete isolation over the, the last three and a half years because of COVID, is cause for loss of hope about the possibilities for change there. Uh, what do you say to that? I understand that. I think that as activists working on this, we have to recognize that. 
and we can't have blind faith or hope. But I still have hope, and a lot of the people that work on this issue have hope. And I do think that it takes a certain kind of long-term mindset and resilience to work on this issue because mm. people have been working on this issue for 20 plus years. And like you say, it's still such a difficult issue. Yeah. It can be very difficult to see, you know, visible, you know, change. There's there's not, you know, been a, a visible protest movement in North Korea, for instance, mm. or, you know, visible, you know, kind of clear political change in the direction that we would want, you know, in a consistent way. It's often two steps forward, one and a half steps back, or even two steps back. But in the long term, I think that people who are able to have that long-term thinking, we do see that, yes, there are setbacks, mm. but there's long-term positive sources of change and hope. This has been really challenged with the pandemic. Mm. You know, the pandemic came out of nowhere for everybody. And it's, it's, it's had a really bad effect, especially on this issue. And we've, we've really seen, you know, I think the limits of how bad things can get, yeah. but the pandemic conditions change and even North Korea will come out of that. And it may be more difficult than before, but we just have to, you know, then up our own efforts, up mm -hmm. our own game and be more creative, bring more support and effort to empowering North Korean people to push for change. Yeah. Now, as well as helping North Korean refugees to tell their own stories, either in Korean or in English, you and your colleagues at Link are often uh, cited or you appear in international media like the BBC, CNN and Reuters and this here podcast. Uh, why is that important? That I think is, to be honest, a little bit less important than some of, some of our other work. Um, but nonetheless, you know, there are a lot of journalists working on this issue and trying to, you know, tell broader stories about North Korea. But it's been very difficult and again, it's become even more difficult because North Koreans don't, I'm sorry, because journalists don't have access to mm. going into North Korea, even in the limited ways and times that they used to be able to. And so, and, and there's of course a rotation of the correspondents that come through Seoul as well, you know, changing every three or four years. Yep. And so we have an opportunity to work with such journalists to introduce them to North Korean refugees themselves maybe introduce them to, you know, broader range of story ideas, and then work with people to try and actually make that happen so that international audiences, they hear different stories about North Korea, again, not just missiles and politics of Kim Jong-un. So I think that it's less important that I myself am in the media, but mm. when there are opportunities to you know, have more North Korean voices in the media, and people are able to learn about North Korea more holistically as a country. Mm -hmm. The challenges that North Korean people face, but also the positive changes and sources of hope that North Korean people are generating as well. Um, I think that that's more important on the on the international media side. Now, in, in June, the BBC published an extensive report on North Korea using uh, messages that text messages that were brought out of North Korea through complicated means about famine and food shortages uh, in that country. And uh, you commented on, on these interviews with North Koreans that a devastating tragedy is unfolding in the country. Can you say more about that? So is the food situation worse than, than it was before the pandemic, for example? Yeah, you know, this project was quite a long-term project. And I think it's important to note that it was looking at conditions during the pandemic, mm. not, you know, at the time that it was published. This is a long-term project, getting information over a longer period and getting information from people about what were their lives like during the pandemic. Mm. So not necessarily in 2023, but you know, people are also talking about the most difficult times during the pandemic, which may have been in 2021, 2022. It's a little bit more of a longer uh, term thing. I think that some people got a little bit confused about that maybe. And it definitely chimes with the other information that we were able to get from different sources and also you know, people doing great work at organizations like Daily NK and Asia Press, mm -hmm. um, reports of resumption of famine and people dying from the severe shortages of not just food, but medicine as well. Mm. And so an increasing vulnerability there. We would hope that the worst of that has already passed and that people are coming out. But that, along with everything else that, you know, made... North Korean lives more difficult during the pandemic has been a really major concern 
And again, it's happened at a time when it's become even more difficult to know more fully and more importantly to help North Koreans inside the country. And, you know, like I mentioned, North Korean refugees on the outside to know what's happening to their family and to help people. So there has really been a double, triple whammy. Again, hopefully the worst is behind us on that. But I think I think this was reflected in the BBC piece a bit, but I think that in the long term, it'll be really interesting to mm. learn more about what this period has been like for North Korean people and not just how hard it has been, but what North Korean people have thought about this period. Mm. Uh, that's maybe the more important thing. You know, I think that when we have more access to, you know, North Koreans who have lived through this period and then escape and are able to tell us about it, you know, how are people interpreting these conditions, this hardship, and the North Korean government's role in that hardship? You know, did they see it as justified? Did it increase discontent? I think there's some some early evidence that maybe for some people, you know, they they this did contribute to a declining loyalty to Kim Jong-un and the, the North Korean government. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of, you know, public sentiment change that we often maybe don't think about enough in North Korea because there's so little information about it. I think that will be one of the really interesting things to to look at. And these kind of, you know, BBC, you know, journalism pieces, they are kind of the first draft of history for those kind of things. We'll continue to have to update our knowledge and understanding of those things as we get more information. Okay, uh, last thing I want to ask you about. Uh, Link has, according to your annual report last year, 22,537 allies. What is an ally? What do they do? And does Link need more? <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Yeah, so Allies is a new initiative that we launched at the end of last year. Like you said, we've already got more than 20,000 allies in, I think, more than 80 countries around the world. And this is really part of our effort to again, kind of counteract the massive focus on North Korea as a security and political issue and show not just people around the world, but also hopefully, you know, North Koreans who are still in the North Korean system, ultimately North Koreans who are still in North Korea as well, that they have support from people around the world. Mm -hmm. There are allies of North Korean people that see North Korean people as different to these other security and political issues. And we're also trying to kind of build that identity along with the movement as well, so that we can mobilize people to effectively support, whether it be through donations to ourselves or you know, even other great organizations that are doing work on this issue, or trying to build that to political leverage so that we can influence government policies on this issue increase the number of NGOs that are working on this issue. We need basically more support for North Korean people and for that to be public and known mm. because historically this has been such an under-supported issue. And so if people are interested in checking that out, they can go to withthenorthkoreanpeople.org. And uh, withthenorthkoreanpeople.org. Withthenorthkoreanpeople.org, we uh -huh. have information on this initiative and people can sign the Allies Pledge, which we wrote with North Korean defectors as well. A lot of this has come from North Korean defectors, by the way, in uh -huh. terms of the value of it. And in fact, I, I almost forgot about that, but part of the origin for this is our refugee work itself. When North Korean refugees are coming through and you know, before the pandemic, when we were meeting a significant number of people in Southeast Asia, when they were able to you know, reach more safety at that point, we would do orientations and we would provide information and so on. Partially, we would tell them who we were because we can't really share a lot of information when people yeah. are coming through China. And we would share support from people around the world. We, you know, we had videos of supporters, you know, talking about why they supported the North Korean people, their solidarity, their allyship. And this was really powerful for so many North Korean refugees mm -hmm. who had reached that point. And we want to be able to spread that to more North Koreans around the world and spread this idea that there is this movement and to undermine the North Korean government's narratives and ideologies about the outside world as a threat and, and all of those kind of things. This has been advocated for really strongly by North Koreans who we consult with, who we work with, that it could be a really powerful kind of soft power tool if we're able to get this to as many North Korean people as possible as well. 
So that's uh, with the North Korean people.org. Also, uh, Liberty in Korea at Liberty in North Korea org and uh, and find you on uh, on the various uh, social medias uh, for people who yeah. want to help and get involved. Thank you. Great. All right. Well, it's been uh, wonderful talking to you again, Sokil Park, MBE. I hope you come back on the podcast again before another five years go by and definitely before you get your OBE or knighthood. <laughs> hey, it, one of those things will happen first. <laughs> From, <laughs> yeah. Inevitably, one will. Yes. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks Thank very, very much, much Sokil. All right. Cheers. Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro news and analysis service. This is not your average news service. It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? the absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles, it's just pure objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time. <laughs>